commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's by your grace that we are here today. And uh, we just pray that as we continue in our study on the apostles of Christ, you'll give us great wisdom and understanding. Father, may we see in these men sinners that were saved by your grace through the work of Christ alone, men who were then imparted with the authority to be the foundation of this church. And we thank you that it's through their writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we come to understand and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves by the working of your Spirit. Father, give us guidance now, we ask. May your Spirit be working in each one of us, illuminating our hearts and minds and growing us to maturity in Christ. In his name for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, if you turn with me to Mark's Gospel, said we continue this morning in our study on the Apostles of Christ. There we see 12 ordinary men were chosen by Jesus to be his delegated authorities on earth. But just saying that sounds like the start of a joke. It's akin to something along the lines of 12 guys walked into a bar. It's quite ridiculous, really, that 12 men would be set apart to be the foundation of the church. 12 sinful and flawed and very normal and very unequipped men. Couldn't Jesus have done things in a far better way? But that is what Jesus did, and it's reflective of the way God operates He works through foolish things in order to show his glory and his might and his grace. As one preacher declared, great sinners become great saints by a great saviour. Now we've seen that already as we've looked at the lives of Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel Bartholomew. But this continues as we look at another two apostles now. The first is Matthew, a a man who was despised by his own people. And the other, Thomas, whose nickname throughout church history has been the Doubter. So we're on good ground here this morning. Yet like we've done with the other apostles, it, it does us well to investigate more deeply who these men were. And in doing so, we learn more about their character something that challenges us as we reflect more upon our own faith and growth in Christ. We're also encouraged as we see the grace of God at work in their lives, knowing that Jesus Christ, who called these men, is the same yesterday, today and forever. Now, the the office of apostle was limited to the first century, so Jesus is not going to empower us to do exactly the same things as the apostles. Yet it does mean that Jesus' character and his nature has not changed, and so he will wonderfully work in those whom he calls by his grace. The apostles were set apart for the task of establishing the church and revealing God's word to his people. We don't need to wait for God's word anymore because it is sufficiently revealed to us as the pages of scripture. We are called to be faithful and obedient to his words as the apostles were. So may our time together this morning be greatly edifying to us all as we 
focus our attention on the Apostles Matthew and Thomas. Well, first, Matthew. We're introduced to this man in chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel. So turn with me there in your Bibles. Mark 2. And from verse 13 and 14, we read this. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, just listen to how this same event is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So it's without doubt that Levi and Matthew are the same man. Levi being his Hebrew name, Matthew being his Greek name. And when Mark records the list of apostles in Mark chapter 3, this particular apostle is referred to by the name of Matthew. And it seems that after the events of this day beside the sea, Matthew became the preferred name of this apostle. Now there were two types of money collectors in Israel at that time. There were the tax collectors and there were the toll collectors. Tax collectors were focused on matters of income and property The toll collectors focused on matters of customs and roads. And that Matthew was sitting at a tax booth meant that he was probably a toll collector. He was on the busy trade route that went through Capernaum. Matthew was probably an employee. The one who owned the tax booth would have bought it as a franchise from Herod Antipas, the ruler of that region, and it was set up to collect money on behalf of the Roman Empire. Now... This in itself meant that Matthew was despised by his people, his own people of Israel, because he was making a living by exacting money from his fellow Israelites on behalf of Rome. But even more so, the tax collection industry of the day was inherently corrupt. As long as Rome got what it needed, those doing the work of collection were known for inflating the costs so they could exhort sorry, extort their own greater cut of money from the people, their own people. So this was Matthew's world. But now as Jesus walks past, he gives the same call to Matthew as he had given earlier to Simon and Andrew and James and John. Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. It's probably not the first time that Matthew would have heard about Jesus. Jesus' fame was extraordinary by that point. Talk of his miracles had flooded Capernaum and the surrounding regions. And Jesus' message has been delivered wherever he went. Even as he strides up to Levi right now, he's in the process of teaching the crowds that were following him. Teaching of the need of repentance of sin and belief in the gospel of the kingdom. The reign of God present in the life of Jesus himself. Well, up until this point... In his life, Matthew had obviously not had enough conviction that his job and his life were in dire straits and needed to do something about it. But as Jesus calls, the lights come on and he sees the absolute necessity to trust in Christ. 
We know from the wider testimony of Scripture that it was not himself that flicked the lights on, but the Spirit. It was not Matthew's own ability that to see his own need that enabled him to respond to Christ. He needed to be born again. That was a fact. But it's not an imperative. It's not something we can do. It's something that God does. At that moment, he was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Only when the Holy Spirit then worked in Matthew's heart through the proclamation of this gospel was Matthew enabled to respond with repentance and faith and obedience. He rose and followed Jesus. He left everything behind. As Christians, we don't always have to leave everything behind, our jobs or our livelihoods and to be a Christian. But if it's the case that we're involved in an inherently corrupt workplace, then as Matthew, the call is to leave those things behind. We're called to holiness and obedience to Christ. And so he did leave everything behind. He had been made a new creation. Now the new had come, the old was gone. And his involvement with corruption had to go and could not be returned to. Matthew's life was dramatically changed that day. And his faith in Christ was exhibited by his actions to obey Christ's call and follow him. And it was further illustrated by his action to to open his home for Jesus, invite Jesus, and then invite his fellow reprobate friends around for a meal to come and hear the life-changing message of the gospel. The inclusion of Matthew into the apostles is a vivid demonstration of the grace of God. The other apostles we've looked at so far were sinners to be sure, but in Matthew we see a man who was utterly despised. Short of the apostle Paul who described himself as the chief of sinners because he'd hunted down Christ's people to persecute them, Matthew nevertheless was involved in the systematic exploitation of his own people and he was benefiting from it. He was cashing in on the plight of his own people. Here's a man who sold out his own people, was profiting off the backs of his own people. And yet, just like Paul, when Matthew met Christ, God's grace enabled that repentance and faith, that newness of life. Now, the scriptures do not tell us anything more about Matthew, but of course we know that Matthew wrote one of the gospel accounts. In fact, Matthew wrote the first gospel account. Not just because it's first in our Bibles as we know them today, but first historically. Now, to say that is to stand against the flow of biblical scholarship today, even evangelical scholarship, because it's generally assumed today that Mark wrote his gospel first, and then Matthew and Luke expanded upon what Mark had written. They had a copy of Mark's gospel right in front of them, and they also had a copy of another supposed source called Q. You may have come across that. A source we should note has never been found. But to hold to this assumption, that the wide and consistent testimony of the early church has to be dismissed. For instance, Irenaeus, he was a famous theologian and apologist who lived between 115 AD and 200 AD. In 185 AD, Irenaeus said this about the Gospels. Let me quote. Now Matthew published 
Among the Hebrews, a written gospel also in their own tongue, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome and founding the church. But after their death, Mark also, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us in writing the things which were preached by Peter. And Luke also, who was a follower of Paul, put down in a book the gospel which was preached by him. And then John, the disciple of the Lord, who had even rested on his breast, himself also gave forth the gospel while he was living in Ephesus in Asia. End quote. Now, denying Irenaeus's work, his words about these events, is a product of the Enlightenment period in the 18th century. At that time, men began to view the scriptures with scepticism and they tried to, to come up with a rational explanation for how the Gospels came about without reference to the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. How were they saying? Well, obviously, they copied each other. But we don't need to come to those conclusions. We know that the Bible is God's word and the consistent testimony of the early church is that Matthew wrote first. Then Mark and Luke wrote separate accounts and the Apostle John wrote years later, shining a light on areas previously unexplored. We can have faith that these words are the words of the Holy Spirit. Now these accounts were written separately, yet stand in harmony with one another, is testament to God's enablement throughout that whole process. Now let me just note that the issue of harmony is most apparent when considering Matthew's gospel. A cursory reading of his gospel seems to show that the chronology of events is in contradiction with the other gospels. Let me just say two things quickly. Number one, Matthew never specifies that his gospel is a straightforward chronological account. So he's not being disingenuous in the way that he presents things. He's structured things far more thematically. For instance, there are five sections of Jesus' teaching that provide the skeletal framework for Matthew's gospel. Number two, when Matthew does seemingly place things out of strict chronological order, the language that he uses is generally vague, very vague, relating to the time. When this happened, this could be... Is he recalling something? Generally, he'd be recalling something that happened far earlier. And so this allows us to see no contradiction whatsoever. Now, it's interesting that Matthew doesn't speak very much of himself within his own gospel. His purpose is about shining a light on Christ, not himself. But what he does say of himself shows us the true nature of his character before the grace of God appeared and made him new. And here is the freedom that comes in Christ. A believer can acknowledge the sinfulness of their lives but boast in the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation to God that has become theirs by the work of God alone. And so in the Apostle Matthew... We see a man who gives all glory to God. Let's turn our attention now to the Apostle Thomas. The only place in Scripture we learn specifically about the Apostle Thomas is in the Gospel according to John. Now we're going to look at three 
three distinct moments where Thomas stood out among the apostles. Before we do that, it's interesting to note that in two of these occasions when John mentions Thomas's name, he includes the fact that Thomas was also called the twin. The name Thomas comes from a Hebrew word that means twin. But when we read in the ESV, the English Standard Version, that Thomas was called the twin, the ESV uh, has obscured things slightly. In other translations like the the NIV or the New American Standard, uh, we read instead Thomas, who is called Didymus. Didymus does mean twin, but it's the Greek equivalent to the name Thomas. So John, in his Gospel account, is saying that the Apostle was either referred to by his Greek name Didymus or his Hebrew name Thomas. Now, if Thomas was a twin, we simply don't know anything as to who that twin was. It has been suggested that Jesus was his twin. We can just dispense with that. I'm not kidding. So, to say more than uh, that Thomas was probably a twin, it's to go beyond what Scripture tells us. Well, the first place we learn about the Apostle Thomas is in John chapter 11. So, turn with me there. This is in the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And to understand Thomas's Words, we need to look at the context, which is established for us in verses 1 to 4. So let me read those. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus had become close friends with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And so word is brought to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. But Jesus explains that this sickness will be a moment of revealing his and the Father's glory. The interesting are the words recorded next in verses 5 to 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How's that? Jesus loved this family so much that he delayed going to see them. Does that make any sense? Well, in Jesus' day, superstitions abounded that the spirit of a deceased person did not depart the area for at least three days. And so Jesus' delay in leaving ensured that no doubt whatsoever could be expressed over what he was going to do. Verse 17 tells us that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days when Jesus eventually arrived. Now we see here clearly that the Lord does not always answer prayer as expected. Because of his love for the family, Jesus delayed coming to see them in order to perform a miracle that would truly strengthen their faith in him as the only son of God. He wanted them to see his power over death itself. He wanted there to be no doubt that he was the resurrection 
and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. Well, picking up the discussion in verse 7, we're told that after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? So Lazarus's home was in the region of Judea, the town of Bethany being about two and a half k's east of Jerusalem. The problem is that Judea was filled with religious leaders who would like to stone Jesus and the apostles realising if they were standing next to Jesus at that time might be included in that reaction as well. Of course, the apostles were still failing to grasp at this point. Remember in the Gospels, before the resurrection, they're still learners. So that despite the constant verbal reminders by Jesus that Jesus was going to Jerusalem where he would be killed and on the third day rise again, they still didn't quite get that. But going to Judea to be with Lazarus was not the appointed time. Jesus responded in verse 9 with what really amounts to a a proverb. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So in the first century, the day was divided into two approximately 12-hour periods. So when it was light, that was when the work was to be accomplished. And while there was light, you worked. But when the night came, the work ceased. And so as these words apply to Jesus himself, we see that while he was coming to the end of his earthly ministry, the hour, specific hour of his death, had not yet fully arrived. So it was still daylight in that sense. And so nothing could cause him to stumble until he had finished what God called him to do. Jesus was reminding the apostles of God's sovereignty. Jesus' enemies couldn't shorten his time by trying to kill him and his friends couldn't lengthen his time by trying to save him. God sovereignly determines the days of Jesus' earthly life. And this is what Jesus was challenging his apostles to understand. He was calling them to do the work that God had assigned them to do while it was still daylight. And that meant being obedient to Jesus' words when he declared, let us, you and me fellas, let us go to Judea again. And for the Christian, knowing all of this brings great confidence We're called to trust God and serve him for all the days of our lives are in his hands. There is tremendous freedom in that wonderful truth. Jesus continues from verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so we see here that Jesus' delay is going to have benefits not only to Lazarus's family and strengthening their faith, it's also going to strengthen the disciples' faith in him. And if Lazarus's resurrection had that effect... Just consider the effect of Christ's resurrection. In that regard, it's interesting to see who speaks up 
in response to Jesus at this point? It is the Apostle Thomas. Verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, we may have taken a while to get to verse 16, but explaining the build-up is necessary for our understanding of what Thomas is on about here. See, the animosity against Jesus coming from the religious authorities was palpable at this moment. And the fear of the apostles makes this clear. And into this steps Thomas with such a display of raw courage. We mostly recognise Thomas as the doubting one, but here he is the dauntless one. Now to be sure, this courage is slightly misinformed. In the first place, Thomas has missed the point of Jesus' proverb that nothing would happen to Jesus and his disciples before the appointed time. Secondly, Thomas has failed to grasp that the apostles could not participate in the death that Jesus would die. As God incarnate, as a sinless one, only Jesus could make atonement for the sins of his people. He alone was the Lamb of God. But nevertheless, Thomas showed immense devotion to our Lord. And Thomas was also a realist. He knew the cost of following Jesus and he was willing to pay the price. In this action, he typified Jesus' call to take up one's cross and follow him. Now, while there were initial misunderstandings about the nature of Christ and his death, there was true revelation at the resurrection. And Thomas, along with all the other apostles, took up their cross and followed Christ. We learn more about the Apostle Thomas in John 14. So turn over a couple of chapters. The scene, of course, is the upper room. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus had just declared to the apostles that he was about to go and they could not follow him at that point, but they later would. Then in John 14, it opens with these words in verses 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And so Jesus is calling for the apostles to trust in him. There's no need for them to fear about his departure because he goes to prepare a place for them. Through his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus is securing a people for himself and paying the price for their sins so they might be reconciled to the Father. And the language Jesus uses in these verses relates to the Jewish wedding ceremony. Now, we talked about this uh, when we discussed Mary and Joseph at Christmas. Let me just remind you of what generally happened in a Jewish wedding. And note the connections. A man would establish a marriage covenant with a woman. And this was a legally binding agreement as... Such to call off a betrothal meant that a divorce was necessary. Now, a betrothed couple could be referred to as husband and wife, even though they did not consummate the relationship until the wedding itself. 
This sets up an engagement period in which the man would then return to his father's house and prepare a bridal chamber. And once this room was complete and at the time determined by the father, the groom would go and collect his bride. It could happen at any time, so the bride had to be ready. And it was customary for the bride to keep a lamp and all her wedding apparel by her bedside, just in case the groom came at night. And as the groom and his attendants approached the bride's house, he would blow a shofar, a trumpet, to announce his arrival. The wedding party would then return to the groom's house where there was a wedding ceremony. And after this, the marriage was consummated in the privacy of the bridal chamber and then this was followed by the celebration of the marriage feast. And so what Jesus is doing when he's speaking to the apostles in the upper room here is he's using imagery familiar to them. Imagery that perhaps most, if not all the apostles, had experienced themselves in their own weddings. But it's not simply that Jesus imports meaning into an aspect of culture, for the scriptures make clear that human marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Human marriage is not the source of Jesus' teaching. Human marriage finds its source in the gospel. And the fact that Jesus says there are many rooms in his father's house shows that no one who trusts in Christ will be left out. All those who trust in Christ, which is all those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the earth, they will all be gathered to be with Christ at his second coming. Hallelujah to that. And then Jesus encourages the apostles by saying to them in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. And so he's asserting to them that this is not a mystery to them. It shouldn't be a mystery to them. This is not some riddle that they have to solve. It's as plain as day. They should know the way because he's been showing it to them throughout his earthly ministry. Last week we looked at Jesus' words to Nathanael in John chapter 1 and there Jesus told Nathanael that Nathanael would see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And Jesus was making the point that he was where heaven and earth met. Jesus was the mediator between holy God and sinful men. And the way to the Father was found only through Christ. But in chapter 14, the apostles still miss it. And it's Thomas who reveals their confusion. Chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Seems a bit odd because Jesus had just told them where he's going. And now we might look at the apostles as a little dense in the gospel accounts, but we should be happy that Thomas spoke up and asked for a direct clarifying statement. We should, we should really treasure this statement from Thomas. At the heart of this question is how can sinners get to heaven? That's it. And that's really the, the question the whole Bible Asks and answers. How are sinners made right with holy God? I once heard it said there was only there is only two religions in this world, Christianity and everything else. Because only Christianity gives the answer to how a sinner is made right with holy God. Every other religion fosters a scheme of works righteousness where it's up to the individual themselves to earn a standing before their God. Which can never happen. Christianity is the only religion of grace. 
For salvation is achieved by trusting in Christ's atoning work and his work alone. Now I'm glad that Thomas had the courage to ask such an honest, straightforward question because it gives Jesus an opportunity to give an honest, straightforward answer. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas's honesty provoked from Jesus words that shatter any other claimant to the title of saviour. It was Thomas's black and white mentality, his realism, that led him to a black and white answer concerning salvation. There is only one saviour and his name is Jesus Christ. There's no grey area here. There's no suggesting that people who have never heard of the name of Jesus can still be saved. As the apostles declared in Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We should be thankful that Thomas asked such a question. Well, there's one more section of scripture in which we learn about the Apostle Thomas. It's a section we're probably most familiar with, so please turn with me to John chapter 20. We're told that on the night of the resurrection, of resurrection Sunday... Jesus physically appeared to the disciples as they were hiding away behind locked doors. But one is missing. And in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 25, we read, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And this is where Thomas earned his nickname throughout church history as Doubting Thomas. But now that we have seen Thomas's character in the earlier parts of John's Gospel, these comments begin to make a lot more sense. Thomas, as we've seen, is a man of two shades, black and white. He's a bottom line man, no mucking around. Notice that he, he doesn't simply say, I will never believe. No, he, what he says is that he will never believe unless he sees the evidence for himself, unless he sees Jesus physically with his own eyes. And as we saw with Nathaniel last week, so now with Thomas, here is a clear testimony that Christianity is not irrational or unreasonable. Christianity is not a blind faith. Thomas's unwillingness to believe without the proof before his eyes makes him a credible witness to the reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection. And the Lord accommodates. Verses 26 and 27. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What was Thomas's response to the evidence before him? Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas's declaration is the climax of all that John has been building up to from the very first verse of the gospel. 
where he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas's proclamation testifies that Jesus is that Word. He is the Word made flesh. He is God incarnate. He is the Lord to whom all must bow the knee. Now Thomas was blessed with seeing the risen Lord Jesus in the flesh. This was a qualification needed of the apostles because they would be the witnesses to this reality after Jesus' ascension. But listen to what Jesus says next, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, there were others whom Jesus would appear to over a period of 40 days before the ascension. After the ascension, the only person Jesus physically appeared to was the Apostle Paul. Last of all, says Paul. But the words of Jesus in verse 29 show that people do not need to search for this experience. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We don't need to physically see the risen Lord Jesus to believe. We can believe because we have the evidence outlined for us in the New Testament and proclaimed to us through the ministry of the church throughout the ages. Look at the next verses because John makes this perfectly clear as he gives us the purpose statement for his gospel. Verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Evidence for the identity of Christ Jesus abounds and it is laid out for us in the pages of Scripture. And the record of Thomas's words and actions is a crucial part of that testimony concerning Christ. Now, while we're speaking about Thomas, it would be helpful just to quickly note as we wrap things up that if Thomas ever wrote anything himself, we don't, know, we don't have any copies uh, of his teaching. You may, however, have come across the Gospel of Thomas, but this dates to the middle of the second century, so it's not from the Apostle himself. And on top of that, the teaching contained within it is in clear contradiction to the true writings of the New Testament. For instance, it finishes with this ridiculous paragraph. Let me quote, Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, look, I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. End quote. That's the Gospel of Thomas right there. The only benefit of hearing stuff like that is to see just how abhorrent un-Christian views of men and women can be. To see that in comparison to the wonder and the glory that God has revealed concerning men and women in the 66 books of his holy word. The Gospel of Thomas is not from the Apostle Thomas. And so while we do not have any written words from the Apostle Thomas, we do have his words from these significant moments in John's Gospel. They tell us something of who he was as a man devoted to Christ. And in that we have a tremendous example to follow. More importantly, his words testify to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as John stated, this was recorded 
so that we too might believe. And so here's Matthew and Thomas, two different men touched by God's grace, tremendous examples of faith, whose words and actions call for faith, the one and only saviour of this world, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the time we've been able to look in your word today. We thank you for the lives of Matthew and Thomas. We thank you for the grace that we have seen at work in their lives. We pray that you would help us to learn from their witness, learn from their mistakes, but be encouraged as we see you working in them and as we recognise the testimony that came through the apostles as a whole, that through them, the whole New Testament was revealed to us. Words that contain life and truth. Words that point us to the one and only Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.